Bonjour, hi, I'm Pascal Auclair. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. J'espère que cet enseignement vous sera aidant. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed. Vous pouvez me soutenir en cliquant sur le bouton sous ma photo. Your support is greatly appreciated. Merci. So, um, if you, uh, maybe if you haven't had the chance to, uh, I don't know if it's a chance, but if you haven't uh, asked a question or uh, brought your voice in the hall, um, please feel free to, if you do have a question, to bring it up. So, uh, if we have any comment about uh, solo practice uh, and or uh, coming together, and what's anything we would have to say around around these? Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone here probably has their own experience now, <laughs> because most people have probably practiced at home at least a little bit, and then together in a community. And uh, tomorrow, we'll get a chance to learn about the. 99 different points of view of that. Uh, And, yeah, I think both are good, you know. Like, there's something very supportive about being in community, especially on retreat. Very few of us could keep this kind of schedule uh, if we were in our own, you know, if we just decided I'm going to go to my garage and do this, like, uh, (laughs) or something like that. It's very difficult to maintain that kind of discipline. So it's very supportive to have uh, people around who are doing the same uh, Thing, as well as, of course, all the supportive conditions of uh, people cooking and um, teachers and all that stuff, right? Um, at the same time, uh, you know, unless you live in a retreat center, then it's important to also be able to develop uh, your own practice uh, at home. So both of them are good. And, you know, when you go home also, if it's possible to have some kind of sangha or a group that you meet with, you know, weekly or monthly, uh, can also be very, very supportive, I think. So... Uh, doing this together and finding good company to practice with is very important. I'd like to uh, follow up on that or add to that. I just uh, left my sangha and I live in a very rural area. And I'm feeling that missing the community and the the direction of the teacher. It's been challenging uh, to find um, continuity by myself. And so I'm aware of the Dharma seat, uh, accessing that. And I wonder if either of you have any ideas about setting up and supplementing my own practice in trying to recreate the richness of the Sangha at home. Yeah. So the question is about uh, ideas about um, re- uh, recreating at home if, uh, if one doesn't have a Sangha around how, or how to create Sangha through maybe uh, electronic means or... Uh, yeah. I don't know if... So there's Dharma Seed that was mentioned. Many of you know this. So many of the talks that were offered here or instructions uh, that were recorded generously by uh, Julia uh, with the help help of other b- uh, volunteers uh, they will find their way onto Dharma Seed that you can access these teaching and many others uh, also other te- teachings from other LGBTQ uh, I to SP retreats and so you have access to that in that form. Maybe you know, uh, some of you might know the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies just uh, next door here. So it's a 
it's just a few feet from here. Uh, BCBS, they offer uh, more and more programs online now that are, uh, you know, they have durations. So, y- so it'll come with a series of talk and you really go into study of uh, one area of the Dharma. And sometimes it comes with coaching so or forums that you plug in at a certain time and you can uh, talk with the other members of the programs or the teachers. Uh, so there's this that I'm aware of. Um, yeah, it's not. Uh, it's not easy. It's one of the big. Uh, one of the the biggest problem that I see in uh, is that people looking for teachers in area where there there are none, you know, and and uh, or sangha to to be with. It's. Uh, we're not in a country here where uh, it's. Uh, indigenous you know where it's this uh, practice is part of the the culture for many of us at least so so in the um, end of the retreat uh, tomorrow we'll give an opportunity if people want to um, suggest some um, small group they want to meet with either people from your area or in your case it might be people who are not in areas that might have uh, dharma uh, groups already and then it's possible to connect with people and then um, you know, maybe like through technology, you can set up some video chats or something periodically to have some sense of connection um, in that way. And sometimes even like listen to the same Dharma talk and then talk about it or something like that. Um, so, yeah, technology provides a lot of um, interesting ways to uh, find connection. And yet also, yeah, the direct connection is like... Uh, me also irreplaceable too so it's good you made your way here for a retreat and hopefully also you can do so another time too Enamored with one of the st- statues you see in, in, in the back, or uh-huh. yeah, yeah. S- something touches you. Yeah. What do you know about Kuan <laughs> 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 Yin Anushka? I, I don't know too much, I will admit. So, um, uh, you know, my own background has been in this uh, like Theravada Buddhist tradition, which is kind of like old school Buddhism and. Burma, Sri Lanka, Thailand. So I practice primarily in um, Sri Lanka. Uh, I've been to Thailand, but I haven't been to um, the countries where the kind of Buddhism um, has Kuan Yin so much. So um, you know, I understand it to be the um, Bodhisattva of compassion, uh, and also like a, maybe a feminine version, or maybe like a mixed gender version of uh, <laughs> Buddha. So I think that's partly why there's the statues around is to. Uh, kind of like undercut the patriarchal nature of only having this guy uh, <laughs> sitting around here. And actually in, in Spirit Rock, where I teach in California, they have um, this kind of Buddha and then a Kuan Yin like next to each other. On Prajnaparamita. The oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, so also like a feminine version of, um, for, you know, and it's all like symbols, right? Like actually in the time of the Buddha, uh, he didn't want any statues of himself. And in fact, for hundreds of years, there was no statues of the Buddha. So if there was any symbol, it was like an empty chair or uh, a circle with two footprints. It's like one thus gone, like he's gone, you know, right? Uh, and then the first images of, uh, of Buddha that you see, you can see these in some, um, like an Asian art museum in San Francisco. They're very Greek looking. It was actually like Alexander the Greek's troops came through and then he looks like this uh, like Olympic athlete, kind of, uh, <laughs> like very buff, kind of big pecs, you know, guy. And then, you know, as Buddhism went to different countries, then the Buddha morphs and looks like the person of that country in some way. So, um, yeah, I think the iconography um, is uh, changeable, and to the extent to which it is inspiring to us, um, then it's good and it's helpful. Um, but... Uh, I just talked for a long time, but don't know that much about Kuan Yin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
one thing that I like that was told to me, at, uh, I mean, I've heard many times the, the kind of uh, saying around Kuan Yin is that uh, she or they can hear the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows, you know, but I don't know that quote or that presentation where it, it, does it come from Jack Cornfield or before, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know, but it's a beautiful thing, the, the capacity. And the other thing that for me touches me is the, the, um, the posture that you see Kuan Yin in often is something like this, the mudra posture. And it says that it's, uh, it's this balance and this availability and also this re ready to go into action, you know, so, so there's something that is ready to meet the world and get engaged. And I think that's uh, inspiring. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful that you, um, you're touched by uh, maybe having a personal relationship with uh, this uh, archetype. And we haven't talked about this so much. You, you've talked about this, Anushka, but there's a, in some tradition or in some personal practices, there is a, there's the space for a lot of devotion could be a, a beautiful way to, you know, cultivate the, 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 the heart qualities. And so we haven't uh, put a lot of uh, emphasis on that here on this tradition. It's not that strong, I think. Meaning the American version of it. Sort of yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, if you go to like a um, retreat, that they have retreats here also that are run by the monks and nuns, led by the monks and nuns. And then there's a lot more devotional like chanting and um, yeah, like sort of puja, like uh, honoring of the, um, the Buddha and um, reflections and stuff like that. And um, yeah, for some people that is very moving and it's... Uh, it can be moving to people even if they don't understand exactly what's being said or know about the symbolism. And then for other people, they're like allergic to anything that seems like religion or a ritual. So then, uh, yeah, up to you. If, if you feel drawn to that, I encourage you to either visit monasteries or come to the retreats here that are um, run by the monks and nuns. Let's talk about the ideal. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, the way I see practice is uh, is kind of manifold. So, you know, in life, so in my daily life, there is the the daily sitting, the actual formal practice. And this uh, actually comes, in, it, it changes forms. So for me, every day I have to have, uh, I would say a couple of hours of uh, introspection. And so for a long time it was sitting like this on a cushion. For another long time it was laying down on the side. And after 20 minutes I would flip on the other side. <laughs> but fully engaged with, you know, sensory awareness, what we've been talking about noticing mind states, heart states, you know, and just staying there, allowing that to be known, fully known. Um, these days it's really strange, like I'll, I take postures that are, don't look so formal. So often what I'll do these, these days, these maybe last two years, is I'll, uh, I'll sit in my living room on the floor, my back against the sofa. So I'm on the floor with legs stretched. And so it looks kind of floppy, for whatever, <laughs> very loose or whatever. And then I'll be there. And I know that this time is, I'm not actually organizing my schedule or I'm actually being there. Yeah. 
And so to me, it's uh, as important as uh, taking a shower or like if I don't do this, uh, and sometimes I can't, you know, but I feel like I owe this to, uh, to the people I share life with, to uh, the students, the, f- the family, the, you know, neighbors. So, so it, it feels like it's a responsibility I have to do. Plus I'm curious about it. It's rich for me to sit and see that. The other part is the actual, um, the, what I would call the non-formal, so the life, li- life activities, you know. So it takes the form of moving in the house. So being aware that I'm uh, going from one place to ad- another, opening a door, closing a door. And um, this to me has been very, very rich in my life to actually, let's say I'm meeting with somebody and there's some energy, it's either fun or confusing or I'm not getting what I want or I almost didn't get it, but I did, you know, whatever. I close the door and I'm going down the stairs to go on my bike to go to the next thing I have to do, you know. Before I would just, I would notice that I'm going down the stairs and, you know, and now, like, it's, it's much more integrated. I close the door, I know I'm closing the door, I'm going down the stairs. I can feel so... The feedback loop is open, you know, so remorse <laughs> can come <laughs> quickly or tenderness or appreciation or, oh my God, I'm hectic, you know, and so I can reset. So it feels like I have many retreats during the day and they're not very long. Sometimes it's just not these days in Montreal, but a couple of months ago still unlocking the bike with my, like really being there and feeling, you know, the of the rust in the, you know, and really being there and the coldness or the hardness of the thing, the thing that doesn't close easily and just being there embodied is always a good way to reset uh, things. Speech also. So speech for me in the best conditions I'm aware that I'm going to be meeting somebody. It could be a friend, it could be somebody, you know, whatever. So going towards the meeting, I try to be aware. And it started actually this training for me by teaching classes in town. So it became really clear that I had to be really there on the way to the class if I wanted to be there in in the classroom. And suddenly I thought, oh, I could do this with the partner too. (laughs) (laughs) when I'm about to meet the beloved, you know, what what I'm going to do before is going to impact how I'm going to be present, you know. And then uh, being uh, relational with whoever is, uh, it's very uneven, but it is an absolutely amazing place to practice. being here, knowing what's happening here, knowing what's happening there or in the field, you know, what's there. And staying interested. And and the more I pay attention, the more I see my values are at the foreground, forefront. They're available. Respect, consideration, integrity. It's all alive when I'm particularly attentive. If I'm not, it's out the window often. And I find myself on the other side, a little confused, and what happened, and you know. So, thank you. I think, um, in <clears throat> in some ways, there's no, there might not be a specific answer uh, to the question, um, because I think everyone has to kind of engage in some active way with their practice, like what is the right thing to do or right amount, and so. You know, generically speaking, I often tell people who ask this question or are beginning, like, see if you can sit every day for half an hour, right? And if you can do that, and if you want to do more, then see if you can sit twice a day for half an hour, right? And if you like that, you can do more, see if you can sit for 45 minutes, and, you know, so on like that. So uh, some people sit for an hour twice a day, right, as a possibility, depending on your life. But, yeah, if you want to learn anything, develop in anything, like learning a musical instrument or a language or something, a half an hour a day is a good amount of like practice time, right? As sort of a minimum kind of thing. And then kind of like how Pascal is describing, like of finding other uh, junctures in your life when you can um, remember to be present again, you know, and 
it could be like in your life you have to walk to the train. So in that place from your home to the train, you're in your body feeling yourself walking. Or maybe there's an elevator in your office or school and then when you push the button, then it's like a bell, ding, like a standing meditation there, right? Stand in the elevator and then it goes up and then you get out, right? Um, maybe you have like a time for a snack or tea break and then you could take like a little mindful snack or tea. Right? And then maybe in the end of the day, you could do some metta practice, like when you're lying down. Like you think about all the people you met in the day and like wish well for them or something like that. So it helps if beyond, beyond the like one practice period, it's good to have that practice period. You pepper your day in some ways, I think, also with other uh, times to remember. You know. And then for people who have practiced for some time, I think um, it's important to keep your relationship to your practice alive and to continue to be, uh, be interested and like stay engaged in some aspect of uh, the um, eightfold path, so some aspect of paying attention to the way that you are in relationship to speech or action in the world or um, meditation, uh, reading things, clarify view, like a lot of different aspects that you can pay attention to. Um, so yeah, keeping it alive in some way I think has been helpful and important. I worked with teenagers around social justice and like racial awareness and just in my experiences of doing actions um, like I know I'm supposed to like hold myself with like loving and compassion and not do action not not call people in from a place of anger or frustration but sometimes when bigotry misogyny and racism are in my face I see that level rise myself of just like I've hit my compassion maximum point and I automatically default into this just like yelling and this just finger pointing. And Buddhism is so important to me from an activist perspective. Like I came into Buddhism through Michael Stone and he's very, this is one of his passions. And um, I just like I'm looking for advice or experiences of like your experiences in those spaces and in, the, in the world of like activated Buddhism. And yeah, so a question about uh, activism and engaging particularly with forces of uh, like racism, misogyny, homophobia, uh, and knowing like kind of ideally that one would engage um, and speak and act from this place of compassion and balance, but then um, sometimes getting really triggered by this stuff and then finding oneself um, yelling or doing other things and like how do you deal with that overall, right? So yeah, I can relate to being an activist in my early, years of engagement after I came out was as a LGBTQ activist. I was in Queer Nation and various other uh, groups and um, have been active in a lot of different social movements. And I remember at some point um, meeting someone who was kind of like an older uh, leader in some groups. And they went to this speech and I was very interested to hear them speak. And uh, when they were speaking, I could hear that they were actually incredibly like bitter, burned out, angry person, you know? And it was not inspiring to me at all as a young person, you know? And I both was like, I don't want to become like that. Like, that's not who I want to be when I grow up. Um, nor does that seem effective to me. You know, like, people aren't going to listen to you. It's, you're not actually even going to get the results that you want if you become like that, right? So to me, then, that was uh, impetus for making this path part of uh, how I relate and... Um, and doing it imperfectly, certainly. So basically, you do the best you can, <laughs> right? And sometimes you blow it, right? And, um, and we blow it kind of habitually. Like some people will blow it by yelling at someone. Some other people might seemingly blow it by backing off from some confrontation when they could have like held their ground or been um, like more vocal, right? So depending on our conditioning and all that stuff. So I think it's, it's part of a continued practice of... Um, of learning and seeing and um, and doing your best and forgiving yourself for it, but also uh, understanding that the the way to the goal is as important, I think, um, and is is part of that too, right? So um, becoming more tuned in to 
how it is that we speak and act, both with our uh, colleagues and comrades and friends, and then even with the one who is the oppressor, who seems to be the oppressor or is the uh, enemy in this case, is critically important. And it's really important now, like we're you know entering into a, a period in which there's so much more um, overt uh, sort of license for people to be um, racist, xenophobic, Islamophobic, homophobic. It seems like. So we're all going to be challenged in this way, are being challenged in this way of like, how are we going to deal with this? How are we going to protect each other too? You know, I think that's an important thing to think about. And as part of our um, training and our practice, uh, even of following the precepts or being people of integrity is not just like, am I not harming someone? Am I not killing someone? But if I see someone being harmed you know, near me and I have the capacity to do something, um, can I intervene and not be like, I'm not the one doing something, you know, like, and in each case it's different, you know, what's the level of safety and does someone have a gun and everything, but I know from um, friends of mine who have had things um, happen to them even since the election, there's one level of violence that happens from someone um, perpetrating a crime and a hate crime particularly, um, in which you're called names or told to go home or whatever, but then also there's another sense from having all these people around who just watch you know, that's another level of, um, like, violence or feeling betray- betrayed by other human beings, you know. So in that way, um, yeah, we all have an opportunity to help protect each other in some way or another that I encourage us all as people who are interested in dharma, meditation, you know, action, to yeah, consider this seriously as a part of your spiritual path, part of your path of uh, development and engagement. Yeah, the only thing I would um, maybe add is um, uh, that uh, training of being with what's uncomfortable, like like really uh, feeling the discomfort and having this uh, stability of mind so that the response can be not reactive but uh, responsible, you know, in, in some ways. And I think you engage in that, and you, you know that, but I... Um, I think it's a particular skill to develop the capacity to be uncomfortable, to be confused, to be uh, triggered and stay uh, uh, engaged in a situation. Uh, And it's messy. It is messy. Uh, Especially, yeah, when we talk about uh, racism and homophobia, and it gets, it's so triggering. It gets very, very messy. But the capacity to stay engaged is uh, so. Um, yeah, the reflection after an event is also very important. Like, kind of, um, what's the expression? Um, mindfulness that is uh, where you review with your mindfulness. There's, there's an expression I've heard a couple of times. Uh, Anyway, so you go through the, with after you go through and you see what, you bring mindfulness after, because <laughs> you couldn't in the middle of, but hold on, so that's what happened, that's how I felt there, that's how, and this is good to revisit like this and say, oh, this is where it went wrong, this is where I lost it. Um, retroactive mindfulness, I think is a, actually a good, uh, a good tool. Thanks. Yeah. Can we speak a little bit about speech? <laughs> <laughs>
It's a, it's a very rich uh, field for practice, and it's one where um, you don't get that many opportunities on retreat <laughs> to do it, although you just did, and you did a good job, so, you know. <laughs> um, so, you know, you speak in the group a little, and, you know, but otherwise, and if you choose to make a question in the hall or something, but otherwise, um, uh, it's, as part of the kind of simplification and um, uh, in some ways helping us to see through the way in which we project ourselves a lot out there, we let go of that here. And then in your regular life, like very soon, you're going to be um, speaking to people. Uh, I feel like the, the Buddhist um, training precepts have more detail than, and more nuance about speech than many different um, ethical traditions do. So the ideas around speech, and in, in this eightfold path that I was talking about, it's its whole own thing. Like one of the eight areas to pay attention to is speech, like separate from action. It's like its own thing. So that shows that it's actually very, very important and impactful. So the, I'll give you the basics. Uh, the basic of it is to um, you know, refrain from saying uh, what is false, right? To so speak truthfully. Uh, to refrain from uh, abusive and harsh speech. So using speech as a weapon, cussing people out or uh, using your, your voice and your speech in a way to harm others uh, intentionally. Avoiding uh, gossip and slander, so a speech that is talking about this one there and this one there, uh, and thus creates you know, discord among people and f- sows seeds of um, mistrust. Uh, and then the last one, which is probably the most um, unusual and nuanced, is to avoid idle chatter or unnecessary speech. Right? Uh, so to pay attention to, like, there's an acronym, WAIT, why am I talking? Like, is it necessary? Uh, Can I give the gift of silence, too? And um, each of these is a very interesting area for exploration, and it's a good uh, practice to do where you attend to this, you know, even each one of them for, like, a week or a month, and notice, like, oh, oh, I think I don't lie, but then when you pay really close attention to it, oh, when do I exaggerate things, right, and why, or... When do I tell what seems like that's a white lie? It's not really going to, you know, quote unquote white lie. It's like it's not going to be a big deal one. It's not going to hurt someone, but I'm doing it to save someone's feelings. Um, you know, the, especially the one around the truth is like uh, the Buddha emphasized this one a lot. And when he taught his son, who was a young boy, he told him, um, "You should not tell a lie even as a joke." You know, this is very, very important for someone on path of. Uh, Integrity, path of development, um, this truthfulness one. Uh, Yeah, and each of them has a lot of detail. So then it's also another level of nuance is um, what's the right time to talk to someone about something? You know, what's the right circumstance, like alone with others? Um, And is it necessary to do so too, right? Uh, So yeah, there's a lot lot about speech in this... uh, tradition that I think is helpful to consider. But in the end of the day, like we have to take all of those and then reflect on it and observe our own you know, behavior too. Yeah. yeah, speech. So um Yeah, the thing that comes to mind to, for me is uh, it's such a powerful energy. It can uh, destroy or hide the truth or destroy relationships. and It can, it can heal, it can assist, it can uh, uh, relieve. It, it can do s- so many things. So to really take it on as a practice... Uh, you know, it's like kind of a nu- nuclear energy. I feel like uh, in the precepts, when at the beginning of the retreat we take the precepts, to me, like the sexual energy is kind of like, I'm so happy that there's a precept just around this or its own chapter because it's such a powerful energy. And speech, I see in the same way, it's very, very powerful. It can express generosity and, and connection and it can be a fluid, uh, etc. And it can also be acid you know and it can destroy and so to um, to uh, to to be responsible with with this uh, 
So here this week, for example, we had a lot of speech. It's a huge responsibility trying to use speech in a way that is uh, helpful, that is uh, onward leading for everyone and, and knowing that it's uh, actually a very powerful thing. And, uh, but also doing it very humbly saying, okay, I'm going to engage with speech because that's the form, it's there. And there's going to be a lot of learning because in speech, one exposes one's thoughts, you know, and one's uh, intentions. So it's all out there. So when we finish the retreat, we go back home in <laughs> a few seconds. You know, our intentions with our the people we live with are going to be exposed. You know, we might have any idea about ourselves, you know, like, oh, now I'm all like this and like that. And within a few <laughs> words, suddenly you're like, oh my God, you know. <laughs> so we have to be very um, humble around that. Um, yeah, and here also this week you've seen there's been a lot of inner speech. You know, we were in relative silence. <laughs> But there was a lot of things going on, and uh, I think the uh, instructions from the Buddha and Anushka around these, the truthfulness and the uh, harshness or abusive speech or empty chatter, I mean, if we apply this on the cushion and in the silence, you know, is what I'm saying true, you know? <coughs> like, is is what I'm saying to myself abusive or not? So... There's a whole field there of uh, attention to inner speech that if we pay attention to it, we'll reveal a lot of our mistaken views and our, uh, the ways we misuse uh, you know, speech, inner speech or outer speech. Thank you. question but it's so related to that um i've become interested in noticing that like some of the thoughts in our speech that i have um the banana trees just vanish as soon as i bring a bit of awareness to them but others can sort of maintain their existence with awareness and they feel very different different kinds of thoughts and different i don't know yeah so around the inner speech or thought, what you've noticed is that uh, many, when in the light, if we could say that like this, in the light of awareness, they kind of crumble and vanish, and, and some actually uh, stay or come back immediately and have a, some kind of a charge to them. And so, what about that, you know? And so, yeah, that's, so that's, um, I'm happy you're reporting this. It means you were there and you saw different kinds of thoughts, <laughs> thoughts that vanish easily when, become, when there's consciousness, when we're becoming conscious of them. And those who have like, they have a, they have a pull, they have a, a strength to them. Yeah. And so it's interesting to stay around and, and, uh, uh, and, and be aware, stay there as they're doing what they're doing. Why are they there? Why, you know, like some often uh, will say, that's a typical thing we'll say as a, meditator or retreat and I want to stop thinking but it's it keeps going <laughs> so it means it's serving some purpose somewhere you know it why is it there and there's so many different purposes that it can uh, it can uh, be serving so sometimes let's say uh, like I want a quiet inside but it keeps describing what's happening and narrating oh so now you're sitting and now you're breathing you know? <laughs> <laughs> and you're like why like I don't want this but it keeps doing this why I so it's interesting to stay, so it's not, uh, the practice is not to get rid of, the practice is to pay attention to. So, so we don't enter a debate, we're just like, oh, hold on. Even I've seen myself sometimes say, stay around, please, don't go. There's a lot of information in you, like I want to feel you better, the energy beneath and stuff, to discover that sometimes, let's say the narration will be, for me, how it appears is a, is a kind of a protection or a buffer against reality. Like, a direct, intimate encounter with reality is a little too raw. You know, I prefer to put something in between, like, oh, this is what we're doing right now, and after we're <laughs> you know? <laughs> and uh, so there's a little fear there to, of the encounter with, uh, or sometimes maybe it appears like, oh, 
it's almost seems like it keeps my identity going. Like if there's no more description, I'm going to disappear, you know. So I need to say something. I have an opinion, a preference, uh, try to obtain something, you know. And so, and slowly when I notice this, then maybe there's compassion that comes. Oh, so there's fear. And so I can maybe let it go. It can be let go of for just a few seconds, knowing it can come back. Or if there's something unresolved, we don't like unresolved things, of course, you know, we want healing. And so the mind will go back to that unresolved thing. There's a charge. And so when we, at some point, yes, there are all the talking and the storytelling around it, but at some point we might be able to feel, you know, the desire for resolve or the not wanting it to be like this, you know. And by and by staying around, we might be able to feel and what can happen, I don't know. Maybe we can ac- accept, oh, this is what did happen. You don't have to tell the story a hundred times. It did happen. You know, trying to change the story by telling it again in case there would be <laughs> a new story, you know. So there's different, uh, it's usually there's an emotion or something, a, a belief or a view underneath that by staying around and allowing it to do its thing, uh, other energies can come, you know, space, friendliness, caring, and then maybe in that it might uh, dissolve. Yeah, keep being curious. It's good noticing. Like, and then keep investigating. Like, oh, what's the flavor of these? What's the emotion underneath them? Is it always the story of me that's compelling? You know, like all this stuff. One more question here. Yeah. Um, this is kind of a big one, like speech. <laughs> um, so a lot of people, I started practicing as a Zen practitioner in 1996 um, when my mom was dying and after she died. And a lot of people in my family died. And so the practice was a lot about dealing with impermanence. And, you know, when I think about different uh, They are about impermanence, you know, from from like dukkha, you know, which is just like discomfort to suffering to, you know, we're going to die and how you live in the world. What is, you know, like, uh, you know, Tibetans have a really specific take on that with a lot of practices and, and the bardos and what's going to happen. What is specifically um, uh, Vipassana's take on impermanence and, you know, both from moment-to-moment experience to, like, how you live in the world when you're going to live That's a small question. So about impermanence and... Yeah, I think I mentioned it in this... uh, as one of these kind of three characteristics, right? That's one of the main ways that it's uh, talked about, that impermanence uh, is an aspect of experiential... Uh, reality, the way that we experience reality, you could say. Um, but this statement in of itself about impermanence is not itself sort of like um, a new ultimate reality. It's more like um, recognizing this characteristic and living in harmony with that is a way to uh, unpick the way in which we erroneously relate to life, the way in which we relate to life in a way that causes um, suffering could say. So that's, that's it. It's not like another um, thing to reify, like impermanence. You know, it's like a thing, and I believe in impermanence and stuff like that. You know. It's more like through the observation and deep understanding about this, then we can start to um, relate uh, more skillfully, more wisely, and actually in a more loving way also to uh, others, to life, to circumstances. So that goes from you know, a moment-to-moment kind of way uh, to a more kind of macro way of recognizing that uh, any animal, human that is born is going to die, as you say. Uh, and so the extent to which we can 
recognize that and live in harmony with that, then we can actually value and be more present with uh, those we get to spend time with because we know it's not going to be like this forever. Like we don't know how long uh, our life is going to last, their life is going to last. So in this way, I think the practice kind of can works on both the kind of detailed level, but also on a, a bigger level like that. And there's a way in which you could say, even then, you know, vipassana would be like just this insight meditation type stuff, right? Which is part of this bigger, uh, larger uh, Buddhist path. Um, but there's a way in which you could say that your practice, one way to relate to meditation practice or uh, is as a way of resting and not knowing and recognizing the impermanence and the ungovernability of life to see if we can, uh, yeah, have some okayness with that, like clearly face that with some courage and recognize that and uh, find peace and well-being regardless of what is delivered up. Yeah, and I'll pick up just a little bit because you were saying... uh, so in maybe in Tibetan Buddhism, there's the bardo, like, so what happens after death, you know, like, and in this tradition, uh, so in one tradition of Buddhism, after death, there's a number of days of traveling before maybe taking another body. In uh, this tradition, it's immediate. So to me, what it points to is that we actually don't know. That's what it brings me back to. It's like, wow, we don't know. Because in one tradition, they say there's 42 days or whatever. And in this tradition, it's uh, immediate. And so I, I like that there's different stories told about that. Because for me, it um, brings, a, brings us back to we actually don't know. And that's what's coming to us, human beings, is actually we don't know what's coming. And this is like the unbuffered version of reality is we actually do not know what's coming. Like we're all here together tonight and we're all equal in that we actually don't know what's going to happen to us. We, we have no idea what's coming for us. We might have ideas, uh, statistics or a bunch of things, but we're all in the same boat that we actually are not knowing there might be beautiful things that we don't expect happening tomorrow or many things, we, but we do not know. To me, this is very touching. This is humbling. This is heart opening. Uh, and this is an aspect of uh, impermanence. And another thing I'll, um, I'll pick, just a little piece here, is... Um, I was talking with somebody and they were asking me, so, so in regard to death, knowing that you're going to die, how do you prepare? Do you have a practice around that? You know, like thinking about it, that one day you'll die, reflecting on it. And uh, what came to me was um, actually my, my, my practice of uh, sitting and noticing. I used earlier the word, the verb flickering nature of reality is uh, the appearing and disappearing quickly, that nature of phenomena. I think of somebody and then I don't think of them for a while, you know, and then they appear in my thoughts, you know. And to actually stay very close to notice how uh, things appear and disappear, like uh, taste, for example. So I'm tasting something, I have chocolate in my mouth and it's tasting chocolate, then I think of something else, like, oh my God, I forgot to do this. Taste had disappeared and then reappears. And uh, one practice that I like to do is when we, uh, we bow at the end to each other af- after the... I just love this practice very much because... Uh, so right after... I, 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 well, I'll pick up that moment because there's, for me, my job is also to lift a stick and knock it against metal. Then I put it down. And I put my hands here, and now I really want to be, really want to be there. Because this experience of my hands touching my thighs, there's touch, there's heat, there's a particular experience, phenomena that is there. And 
the amazing thing is gone. It's completely gone. Then there's this experience here, and it's gone. And then, <laughs> there's this experience. It's so existing. The little heat and, you know, smoothness or softness or whatever is there. And then, gone. And then, and to me, this, I'm joking a little bit with this, but it's, to me, it's as close as I can get to death. You know, like it's, it's me getting acquainted with things disappearing completely. You know, and it's a good practice because I'm okay with my, this sensation disappearing, you know. But I feel it's very intimately related to things disappearing. And it feels like one day I go to the doctor and they'll say, oh, health, it's gone again. And I don't know, because I haven't had this experience. But my sense is I might say, like, I kind of was aware that it was there and it would go, you know. As that things do go, because I've spent a lot of time watching things go, little things. It's my way to practice for big things, you know. So, I don't know. <laughs> maybe it's going to work, maybe it's not going to work. <laughs> So there's there's some big uh, like a Buddhist metaphysics and sort of levels of this and that in this tradition also, but it's really not emphasized so much, particularly in this American Buddhist uh, school. And I think we usually think like, well, the many religions they have this question like, what's going to happen when you die? And then they come up with a whole schema about it. So this one is more focused on like not what happened when you die, what happens when you live, you know, right? Like, and that's what this practice is all about, and that's what he's describing and like beautiful detail, is learning how to live fully and with wakefulness. And in that, you also can learn how to die gracefully. Okay. So that's what it looked like tonight. (laughs) Thank you for your your, um, attention. And... uh, Let's uh, watch it dissolve. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.